So I should do my best to be coherent, but I must confess that four days of meetings combined with jet lag is a perfect conditions for scrambled brains. So what I'd like to reflect upon this evening is the, the practice of happiness. The Buddha once was quoted as saying that this is a path of happiness leading to the highest happiness and that the highest happiness is peace. The kind of happiness that the Buddha speaks of often is not referring to some kind of time-bound meditative state. He's not talking about a kind of blissful dissociation that it ignores the very real distress and anguish that are part of many people's lives. What he's really speaking about is a, or pointing towards is the possibility of an inwardly generated happiness born of a well-trained mind, a well-trained heart. I think yogis and practitioners over centuries have discovered really the same simple truth, that it is the collected mind that brings happiness, that it is the disciplined mind that is the source of joy. Happiness, as it's suggested, is not something we have. It's not something that happens to us. Happiness is something more than just an episodic encounter with a particular state. That happiness, instead, is something we practice. It is a quality we cultivate in the midst of all moments and in the midst of all of the events in our lives. And if we consider that this might possibly be so, then it seems evident that unhappiness is also something we practice. Not just something we have, uh, not just something that happens to us. So the kind of happiness and peace that is spoken about in this tradition, in this teaching, is really a happiness that is born of understanding. It's born of a very radical inner change. Um, it's not about having ideal conditions. It's not about having the perfect meditation cushion, you know, the perfect climate, the perfect relationship, the perfect job, or the perfect life. Just as unhappiness and confusion and tension and agitation is also born of a lack of understanding. So I'd like us to reflect a little bit about what we're doing here as we gather our attention, as we establish mindfulness in the body, breathing, as we establish mindfulness in the present moment. This is obviously not, and I hope that's clear, it's, it's not about becoming more concentrated. It's not about forcing. 
but it's actually what we're doing here is we're learning to explore the landscape of unification, the landscape of integration, the unification of body, mind, and present moment. And through that unification, to establish a calm abiding in the midst of all things, in the midst of the storms of our thoughts, our moods, the events that come and go, to establish a calm abiding in the midst of the mosquito attack, um, the deer fly attack. We're learning to establish an inner collectedness whether standing or sitting, whether walking or lying down. And all of the moments that we're actually cultivating this inner collectedness, we are, in a very real way, practicing happiness. This is how we begin to practice happiness. And that happiness has a taste. And you taste that in those moments of inner collectedness. It has a taste that <clears throat> of sweetness, of, of poise, of alertness, of responsiveness, of spaciousness. The, the Buddha once uh, suggested that this path is one that is lovely in the beginning, lovely in the middle, and lovely in the end. It took me really a long time to agree with that. <laughs> because at times this seems so far away from the, the taste of our own experience, which doesn't always feel that lovely, you know. You might find yourself today, you know, how many moments of loveliness have you come across? hopefully one or two. But we do have a lot of moments where we find ourselves somewhat struggling, getting lost, doubting, being reactive, or getting so immersed in our meditative projects and our life projects. And sometimes, of course, rather than loveliness, we're just falling asleep, you know, just checking out. The disunified mind also has a taste. This sense of non-integration, disunification, also has a taste. Uh, neuroscience tells us that the average person spends 50% of their time with a wandering mind. Okay, so, you know, think of that one. <laughs> Sit for 45 minutes. If you're lucky, 20 minutes, you're here. Think of a whole day. If, if you're up for, you know, 16 hours, eight, eight of those hours, you're just somewhere else. Think of a life. Think of a life. And all of those moments, of course, of that, of that wandering mind are, are moments that we're not truly living fully. There are moments of, of disunification, of distractedness, scatteredness, fragmentation. And the, the research that's done points very clearly that the wandering mind is actually an unhappy mind. It sends out signals 
of unhappiness. Now, we, we can be all too familiar with this landscape of disunification, you know, where our body is in one place um, or just forgotten altogether. And our mind, of course, is preoccupied with the past, leaning into the future, uh, swimming in obsession, rumination in the present. And we, we often do, it's very frustrating, I think, to find ourselves living with a rather wayward mind um, that's so unresponsive to our intentions. So unresponsive, it seems, to our intentions and so forgetful of our aspirations. You know, a mind that seems to just have a kind of life of its own. There's a story from the life of Ajahn Shah when he was out for a walk with some of his students. And as they were walking down to pathway, they, they pat, there was a huge boulder on the side of the path. And Ajahn Chah asked his students, he says, do you think that boulder is really heavy? You know, and he, he said, look at the size of it. You know, of course it's really heavy. He said, only if you pick it up. <laughs> right? How many moments in a single day do we find ourselves picking the boulder up and hauling it around? We don't want and don't intend to be lost in obsession or reactivity or, you know, telling the same narrative for the 999th time. It feels like enough already, but there we go. Once more, we find ourselves sort of carrying the boulder around and not quite knowing, it seems, how to put it down. But this is actually what we're practicing. This is what we're cultivating. How to unbind from the habits of agitation. Being able to know that the boulder is there and to leave it in its place. We're learning to cultivate in that a certain inner easefulness, a skillfulness of unbinding, of knowing what's essential and knowing what's inessential. And I want to read you a discourse where the Buddha speaks about this. Now, I have to contextualize this a little bit. Um, there's actually several discourses in, in the Middle Lake Sayings titled One Fortunate Attachment. Now, apparently, this has been retranslated as one happy night. It doesn't work for this talk. So I'm going with one fortunate attachment, you know, and we can do one happy night, another talk, okay? I'm going to speak about one fortunate attachment. Let not a person revive the past or on the future build their hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future is not being reached. Instead, with insight, let them see each presently arisen state. Let them know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today, the effort must be made. Tomorrow, death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is they, the peaceful sage has said, 
who has one fortunate attachment. I find it an interesting turn of phrase, you know, to refer to this as a fortunate attachment when so much of the teaching seems to point towards the freedom born of non-attachment. There are other words we could use. We could speak about a fortunate commitment, a fortunate dedication, a fortunate intention. But using this phrase, this fortunate attachment or this fortunate commitment, is really pointing toward the power of the power that this has to shape our mind and to our world and to bring about inner transformation through seeing with insight each presently arisen state. To see with insight each presently arisen state. Now, living in the present moment has really become, I'm sure you would agree, something of a cliched phrase. It's almost like seems to allude to some sort of, you know, suspended moment, you know, in time, you know, that never changes or never goes anywhere. Some eternal state where past and future have ceased to exist. Quite frankly, this is quite, would be quite dysfunctional <laughs> in The Buddha is pointing to something quite different. He's really tracing the way in this kind of abiding. This kind of abiding. Let not a person revive the past on the future build their hopes. For the past has been left behind and the future not reached. Instead, with insight, let them say, see each presently arisen state. What is the Buddha's talking about in this teaching is really tracing the ways that the mind becomes fragmented and disunified. And he's making a relationship between the fragmented and the disunified mind and the creation and the recreation of distress moment to moment. And acknowledging the ways that peace and freedom can only arise in that present abiding with insight. The fact that thoughts and memories and anticipations arise is really not the problem. Without the future, without thoughts about the future, none of us would have arrived here. We wouldn't get home. Um, Without memories of the past, he wouldn't know what address to go to. He might claim somebody else's car. (laughs) It is what is happening in the mind in the midst of this arising that difficulty and distress and fragmentation begin. Let not a person revive the past. The key word here is revive. We could use other words than revive. Let not a person repeat the past, dwell upon the past, relive the past, solidify the past, recreate the past. Thoughts of the past arise in the present, don't they? I used to be younger, I used to be healthier, I used to be happier. If, if only I had made different choices, if only I hadn't done this, if only I hadn't said this. As the Buddha pointed out, 
We delight in these. It's interesting. We delight in these thoughts. Now, delight here is being used in a very, very particular way. But we do, what is meant by delighting in those thoughts of the past is, is how we dwell upon them, how we hold to them, how we surround those thoughts of the past with, with, um, with uh, craving and, and aversion, um, with self-view. I am, I used to be, I was. This is how we create and recreate and delight in that which has gone by. And in doing so, surrounding those thoughts that arise with emotional memory, they actually become our present. I want certain experiences again that I loved in the past. I want to feel happy again. I want to feel in love again. I don't want the difficult thoughts. I'm, I'm afraid of relapsing into contractedness or depression. I am my thoughts. I am my mood. I am my, my body. Through surrounding those thoughts with craving and aversion and selfing, they actually become the past becomes the present. Let not a person build hope upon the future, lean into the, lean into the future with dread or expectation. And isn't it true that especially in, when times are difficult, and this is actually quite understandable, how we, we can live waiting and hoping for a better moment. Have you ever found yourself, this is really quite amusing, checking your watch during a sitting? Or during a walking period? Doesn't really make any sense, does it? I mean, <laughs> it's like, it's like that, that second hand is going to go around one more time and suddenly I'm going to be happy. You know, I'm going to have another moment. You know, I'm going to have another moment. There's something curious about that. How often we can live wait, waiting for a better meditation, a better life, a better emotion, a better state, and, and how much energy goes into that delighting in those thoughts through rehearsing and strategizing and over-planning, as if this present moment is only like a kind of waiting room that we're hanging out in, in the, the eternal waiting room, in the service of a moment that hasn't arrived. We delight in the thoughts, we invest in them. It's a kind of postponement practice. I really, uh, there's a Zen cartoon that I absolutely love where uh, a young student is obviously asking his teacher a question. And the teacher is looking quite bemused and, and answers the student. He says, nothing comes next. This is it. <laughs> nothing comes next. This is it. We get pulled into the past quite unwittingly through regret and through guilt and shame. The if only pulls us into the future, if only. Hoping things are different than they are just now. Not always recognizing that in that, in that delighting in the thoughts of the past and the thoughts in the future, it's quite possible that we are practicing unhappiness possible that we are practicing unhappiness. 
through preoccupation and dwelling on what has already gone by or yet to come. So how do we practice happiness and freedom in the present? Deeply seeing this present moment body, deeply attuned to the feelings, the perceptions, the moods that arise, but not surrounding anything at all with holding, with clenching, with being who we are. The mind and the heart in those moments is quite freed from craving, quite freed from aversion, quite freed from clinging, and finds in that a very deep inner collectedness that is bright, that is lucid, that is a calm abiding in the midst of all things. And I hope you can hear this not just as a good theory, but as something that, ha- or as something that happens to other people, or something that might occur once that we've worked out the past or realized our hopes for their ambitions for the future, or once that we've rearranged the conditions in our lives to be as perfect as they can be. But I hope we can hear this as an invitation for us all. In the early years of my practice, I really felt that, you know, peace was really dependent upon having, you know, the best conditions that I could get, you know. And I lived on a mountainside in in the Himalayas in India. And, uh, you know, I look back at the foolishness of this, you know, it was pretty peaceful, you know. (laughs) I mean, you know. A few cows wandering by now and again, you know, and, uh, you know, there weren't any cars, you know, I didn't have to do anything, you know, I had to sit around all day, you know. And I was so antsy about the cows. (laughs) And the people who were looking after the cows, you know, I was quite convinced they were disturbing my, you know, real obstacles to my awakening, you know. (laughs) So so I moved further up the mountain. Quite, quite a bit further up the mountain, even a more secluded place, more secluded place. Well, birds, what are you going to do about the birds? You know, I mean, really, what are you going to do about the birds? You know, so I'm invested, I'm going to get earplugs, you know. And, oh. So I moved again, I moved again further up the mountain, and this, this crummy little hut, um, you know, mud floors, you know, tin roof. Tin roof, this is a key part of this story. By the way. <laughs> and I put blankets up on the windows, you know, and I had earplugs and monkeys. If you've ever heard a monkey on a tin roof, you know. And one day I found myself standing outside my hut shouting at monkeys. <laughs> Uh, sometimes was, I was quite a slow learner sometimes, you know, and I realized, you know, what am I thinking? You know, that peace is dependent upon the absence of things. And what was I thinking? It was, a very, it was a very good realization, actually. I moved back down the mountain. It was much easier. So, <laughs> so if we're going, to, if we practice peace and serenity, if we practice calm abiding and freedom as present moment cultivations, present moment practices, I think it's likely obvious we need to understand and to learn how to stop practicing agitation and fragmentation. 
If we practice serenity, we actually have abandoned agitation. We're not practicing both in the same moment. If we practice calm abiding, we have actually abandoned in that moment discontent. If we practice kindness and spaciousness, we have in that moment abandoned aversion and contractedness. If we practice freedom, we have abandoned the practice of clinging. And this can actually only happen in the moment. We need to be mindful of what we are actually practicing because we are always practicing something. We also, I think, learn to delight. Learn to delight in inner collectedness. We learn to delight in calm abiding rather than delighting in disunification and obsession. I often think of the Buddha as being a kind of map maker. He, he offered us many maps of psychological process and maps showing the way to freedom. And of course, the great blessing of any map is that it helps us not to get lost in the wilderness. Now, some of the maps that the Buddha offered are very complex. Some of them are, are really quite simple. But they are all dedicated to bringing distress to an end, to, to liberating the mind, and actually to really follow those maps. We need to have some wholesome desires that we delight in. You know, we need to have the wholesome desire for being awake, for being free. This is what sets uh, to, to serve the world, to, to learn to deepen in compassion and, and care and, and giving. We need to foster the lovely. This is part of actually being able to walk this path. We need to foster the lovely and to be a conscious participant in healing the world that needs so much healing. These are all wholesome desires. You know, the Buddha was not into some sort of narcissistic pursuit. I think people easily forget how much this whole practice is a relational practice. It's not about, you know, my self-improvement, you know, my perfect meditation. It's about the kind of footprint that we leave on the world and really what we're dedicated to and the potential we have really to be a conscious participant in healing a world that is so broken. These are all wholesome desires. And then, here's the bad news. There's craving. And there's aversion. Wholesome desires never create or recreate distress. But craving and aversion create so many ripples of discontent, this moving towards, this pushing away that's so familiar to us. And the, and, and the, the craving and aversion have such extended families of judgment and shame and guilt and, and greed and hatred. And they are the habit patterns, actually, that lead us to delight and dwell upon what has gone by and yet to come and to struggle with and obsess over what has arisen. 
there is a trajectory of craving and aversion. And it's clear when we actually delight and practice craving and aversion, um, it begins to shape the mind and it begins to shape our world. And craving and aversion hardens into clinging and identification and shaping the self at the moment. I'm hopeless, I'm a failure, I'm my body, I'm my emotions, I'm my mood. It all happens so quickly. And each time it has, happens, it, it has a taste. And it's not a taste of loveliness, but it's a taste of struggle and a taste of pain and a taste of contractedness. You know, if we want to turn process into state, just throw in a little bit of craving and aversion an identification. That's all that's needed. If we want to turn verbs into nouns, we only really need to add clinging. And it's not as if we do this. Please don't, you know, I think sometimes our language is so problematic, isn't it? Because everything begins with I, you know. And so it's not as if we are doing this intentionally, you know. Not like we get up in the morning and say, I'm really going to do a lot of craving today, you know. <laughs> you know, I'm really going really to go all out on aversion today, you know. It, it's not as if we do this. This is simply what unfolds in the absence of awareness, in the absence of understanding. Now, craving, aversion, identification, selfing, you know, they can have very long histories, but they don't necessarily have equally long futures. Clearly, they're not life sentences, nor are they constantly occurring. This is something really to notice. How many moments in a day are quite free of craving, quite free of aversion. These are the quieter moments in our day. They have quiet voices. Craving and aversion have such big voices that they tend to drown out everything else. But there are so many moments in a day that are quite free of craving, quite free of aversion, quite free of clinging. And we need to learn the taste of those moments. They are moments of easefulness. They're moments of of calm abiding. They have a a taste of freedom. And we're asked to know them so deeply and to sense them and to value them and to appreciate them and to learn from them because these are practices of happiness. Just as we're asked to understand the taste and the practice of unhappiness. The Buddha was no stranger to Mara, this word that's used to describe the whole range of unhelpful and undermining psychological habits and patterns and craving and aversion, dissociation, doubt that can feature so strongly in our psychological landscape. But what did Buddha, the Buddha do? He just looked Mara in the eye and said simply, I know you. I know you. Didn't go into battle, didn't you know, try to annihilate, didn't try to avoid. Just said, I know you. Rather than surrounding those habits with yet more craving, aversion, selfing. And it's in the I know you that really lies the seeds of calm abiding. I think it's really helpful for us to develop this kind of inner literacy. I know you craving. Couldn't even smile upon it. I know you aversion. I know you agitation. 
you know. I know you clinging, you know. And to even to be able to smile upon it and to know that in that knowing there's not judgment, it's not blame, but it's standing at a kind of crossroads where we can feed the patterns of agitation and disunification or in the midst of that knowing can really foster the capacity we have for inner collectedness, for calm abiding, for unbinding. This is what we can choose to do, and it is, it is truly a discipline. I think we, we live within a landscape, obviously, of changing events in the body, in the mind, in the world. And much of it we don't choose, and much of it we can't control, but we're not helpless because we can choose how we respond. You know, I, I live in a part of England, you know, it, it, it doesn't snow there except every 20 years, you know. I mean, I have a banana tree in my garden, you know. We, we have palm trees, you know. This is England, by the way, and it might not fit in with your ideas. But this spring, we had the storm of all storms. And I was needing to travel to get to the Netherlands, foolishly. Um, and uh, there was one point I was on this train after already 36 hours of traveling. This is a trip that should take me five hours, by the way. After 36 hours of traveling, I was on, uh, getting on this train out of Bristol. And, and the, the dry, it was the first train that got out through the snow in the morning. By the way, this was snow, real snow. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, you're from here. You know what real snow looks like. But for us, it's odd. You know? um, we don't have plows, by the way. You know? so, so we got on this train, the first train out of Bliss, Bristol heading towards London. And the driver came on the loudspeaker and he says, it's just me and you on this train. He says, there's no catering. I mean, there were a few passengers on it, very few. He says, there's no catering. There's a train on a line over there. People have been on it overnight without heating, stuck in the snow. He said, we're just going to do our best. So I sat down beside this woman. So I raised my eyebrows. We raised our eyebrows at each other. And I said, we're going to do this one of two ways. I said, we're going to be anxious every step of this journey, or we're going to celebrate every station we get to. She said, let's do that. I brought, and then she said, I brought sandwiches. <laughs> it was so classy. It was, it was like, it was like perfect, you know. So, you know, it, it did take quite a few hours, but she brought sandwiches. It was great, you know. We had actually really quite a nice time. I think we can learn to trust that inner stillness is a birthplace of wise responsiveness. The world doesn't need more agitation. It doesn't need more hatred. It doesn't need more greed. It needs appropriate responsiveness, which is rarely born of craving or agitation or anxiety. The Buddha says, The one who fully develops and fulfills mindfulness of breathing, practicing systematically what has been taught by the wise, illuminates this whole world like the moon released from a cloud. We learn here to gather our attention from the fields of the past, the fields of the future, to step out of preoccupations in the present, and to establish mindfulness in this body, this body breathing. It's always a process of unifying. It's always a process of integrating. It's a verb. It's a verb. We are in the process of collecting 
of gathering. It's not easy, you know, we get pulled into the field of habit so easily, so, so well practiced at it, and yet, it, and it's also it's so clear to us, isn't it, that whatever we practice, we're going to get better at. Yeah? Whatever we practice, we're going to get better at, both the skillful and the unskillful. But what we are doing here in this cultivating of this unifying and this integrating is truly is a training for our lives. And it's not something reserved for formal meditation. It is about how we live. So we learn moment to moment to gather and to come back into this body, into this body breathing. And this is always a present moment recollection. A present moment recollection. Whether sitting or standing or walking and lying down, to know what we're cultivating, to know what we're practicing. Just as craving and aversion really are the conditions that lead to the arising of identification and selfing, calm abiding is the condition that leads to the end of craving and aversion condition that leads to the end of craving and aversion and clinging. And I think it's so important to ask of ourselves, you know, where is it that happiness lies? Does it lie in this inner unification or does it lie in fragmentation and disunification? Because when we ask those questions, I think we really are learning lessons that are simply too important to forget that the key to happiness is actually in our hands. So we learn to be careful with ourselves. We learn to be careful with ourselves as we move through our day, beginning to sense more and more clearly those, those movements from unification to disunification. The movement from disunification back to unification. We learn really to begin to track that in our own experience and to really taste what lies in those fields. Ah, that disunification, mind, body, present moment, separated, fragmented, often by craving or aversion or clinging. What does that feel like? Ah, that's a taste of discontent. That's a taste of anxiety. And then we learn to regather. And it's so interesting how simple it is at times to regather. You know, by just setting that intention, planting that intention, to bring together again body, mind, present moment, and to sense the taste of this. As we move through the day, we can see how our bodies actually can become almost vehicles for craving and aversion, can't they, behaviorally, you know? We're, we're just moving through the day, looking for something more, you know, or looking to get away from something. Or, that's, or our eyes can become so hungry, can't they? You know, a little bit more entertainment, a little bit more sense impression, a little bit more excitement, you know, a little bit something more, more exhilarating. Um, and we taste the moments. And we see the way our bodies become messengers of, you know, vehicles of aversion, turning away from. And we start to notice, really, sometimes in a very humbling way, how craving and aversion can govern so many of our choices and our behaviors and our acting and our thinking. And it's uncomfortable. But then we also learn that we can pause 
and we can stop and we can be still. We can gather our attention and we feel our feet touch the ground. And the same eyes, the same body becomes really an embodiment of stillness, of calm abiding, becomes a messenger or a vehicle of appreciation, of sensitivity, of generosity, of compassion. Going back to the the quote in this discourse. Today the effort must be made, tomorrow death may come, who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells us ardently, relentlessly, by day, by night, it is they, the peaceful sage has said, who has one fortunate attachment. It is, it is very easy to kind of prevaricate, to postpone, you know, waiting for this ideal moment to arrive. You know, I'm going to be present after I have my nap or after I retire, you know, or you know, when my knee's better, when I improve myself. There's a wonderful saying in the Tibetan tradition. It says, by the time you've found for yourself a generous benefactor, good food and excellent accommodation in order to begin the path, you've already cultivated the demons before you've begun to cultivate the Dharma. This simple knowing established within the body breathing, we establish we practice, we cultivate. And we establish that same simple knowing in the midst of all things, free of preferences, the lovely and the unlovely, the calmness, the agitation, the events. And in those moments, we're actually learning to leave craving and aversion behind. And this, I think, is when we wake up to the wonder of the moment. It's where we wake up to the beauty of the moment. It's where we begin to really, really nourish and nurture those seeds of capacity we have. For this sense, not only of calm abiding, but a genuine inner freedom that begins actually in inhabiting this moment we are in. I want to end with a poem some of you may be familiar with. It's by Fernando Pessoa. Some of you may know his work. It says, Beyond the bend in the road, there may be a well, and there may be a chateau, and there may be just more road. I don't know and don't ask. As long as I'm on the road that's before the bend, I only look at the road before the bend. Because the road before the bend is all I can see. It would do me no good to look anywhere else or at what I can't see. Let's pay attention only to where we are. There's enough beauty in simply being here and not somewhere else. If there are people beyond the bend in the road, let them worry about what's beyond the bend in the road. That, for them, is the road. If we're to arrive there, when we arrive there, we'll know. For now, we know only that we're not there. Here, there's just the road before the bend. And before the bend, there's the road without any bend. We take a moment just to sit together.
So thank you for your attention. So there's a walking period now, an opportunity to practice happiness. And then we'll come back at 8.45 for a short sit to end the day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.